We're going to continue uh, this morning in the Gospel of John. So if you will follow along with me, we will begin in John uh, chapter 3, and uh, it will be in uh, verse 1, the beginning, through verse 21. Now there was a, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is God's word. It's without error in any part. It's given for our good and for his glory. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning that your spirit would be active and moving. Drawing our hearts to you, reminding us of, of who you are and who we are and of our great need of Christ Jesus. Pray that you would bless the reading of your word and that it would bear much fruit in our lives. And you would bless its preaching. We pray all of this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So we're in the Gospel of John. We're going to continue this morning with that. And if uh, you remember the Gospel of John, he tells us at the end why he's written this. That, that we might believe, and by believing that we might have life in Christ Jesus. And we get to this passage that it's full of cliches that, you know, to be born again, something that, that we hear used often, sometimes in a derogatory tone, 
uh, sometimes in, in, in a beautiful way. And someone declares that they've been born again. As we go through this this morning, I just want you to ask you that you go ahead and put that, the cultural baggage that comes with this to the side. And that, that we see what, what Christ is really teaching us as he proclaims to Nicodemus that we have to be born again. By now, you've probably looked in your bulletin, you looked at the title of the sermon, and you're like, Marty, what does the magic school bus have to do with this? Well, here's the deal. There, there's only so much creativity you get when you're preaching, right? I mean, God's Word's God's Word. I can't create any more of it. I can't add to it. I can't take away from it. And, and it's pretty plain what Jesus is teaching here. So there's not a whole lot for me to, to you know, exposit on. It, it it's kind of is what it is. So the one place I get a little bit of, of creative freedom is the title of a sermon, But I also think that, that if you're familiar with the magic school bus, that Nicodemus is having one of those moments that, that Mrs. Frizz's students have. See, growing up for me, I don't know about you or maybe with your kids, but, but I was an inquisitive child. I, I asked a lot of questions. Why things worked the way they worked, why things were the way they were. And, you know, you know bless my mother. Now, she reminds me often of, of this personality trait of mine. I, I, I'm sure I drove her crazy. But I would ask a question, and my mother's a very intelligent woman. Sometimes she would answer, and sometimes she would say, let's go to the library, and we'll get a book about that topic. And you can read, we can read the book together. And there were other times where she would, you know, turn on Sesame Street or Fraggle Rock or, or the Magic School Bus and hope that it would distract me and maybe point me in a different direction than the question I asked. And so I, I, I learned from the Magic School Bus. Today we have Netflix, and my daughters can ask me a question. I can go to Netflix and pull up the new Magic School Bus and go, yep, that episode answers that question. Here you go. I'll watch it with you in case you have questions. Um, but the original had a theme song sung by Little Richard. It started as a dialogue. It started uh, with Arnold, uh, one of the, the characters. He said, let this be a normal trip. And Wanda said, with the frizz? And then the rest of the kids would say, No way! And then little Richard would start, and he would say, We're cruising on down Main Street, relaxed and feeling good. The next thing that you know, there's an octopus in the neighborhood. And the song kept going, talking about all these crazy things that they would happen. If you're familiar with the show, they, they're going to investigate something. They get on this school bus, sometimes they shrink, sometimes they fly into outer space in it. And, and it leaves them, at first, a little unsettled and cautious. They get a little worried, they get a little scared as they begin to investigate this thing. But over time, as they begin to understand a little bit more, they feel compelled and their curiosity grows and they, they step outside the bus and they begin to explore and learn and know more and more. That's what's happening here. Nicodemus is this teacher. He's this Jewish leader and he shows up and he proclaims to, to Jesus, we know that you're from God. Nobody could do the stuff you're doing unless they're from God. And before he can even answer, ask his question, Jesus starts the lesson. And it's a lesson that unsettles Nicodemus. And you can see by his constant questions back to Jesus that, that he's confused and he's unsettled. It, it's left him a little uncomfortable. That should happen to us. As we begin to encounter the real Jesus, we should be unsettled. His grace towards us should unsettle us. But it should also compel us. And so this morning, that's, that's our two points. We're going to look at how... how Jesus' grace for us unsettles us, but it also compels us. So would you read with me? First, it, it, it unsettles us because it exposes in us a great need. 
verse 3, right after Nicodemus has said to Jesus, we know that you're from God. No one could do these things if they weren't. And you're expecting a but after that, right? You're expecting him to claim, Jesus, you're a great teacher. God is with you. We understand that. But, and a question to come. The question doesn't come, though. So it leaves us kind of like this, Jesus launches into this thing that seems like a non sequitur. Like, where did this come from, Jesus? Out of left field. But if you read just before chapter 3, just a few verses there, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knows Nicodemus. He knows Nicodemus' heart. He knows Nicodemus' questions and longings. And he knows ours. And often before we get to ask the question, he begins to give us the answer. And that's what happens to Nicodemus. Nicodemus proclaims these things, and then Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Think of the implications of what Jesus is saying to this Jewish leader. He's saying to this super pious, super religious, law-keeping Pharisee, you, you, you want to get into the kingdom of God. You, you want to know what, what is it, what's required to get into the kingdom of God. Let me tell you what's required, Nicodemus, for you to go back and start over. Rebirth. You're here this morning, you know anything about procreation. You can remember back to your own birth, your own gestational period, your, your own conception. Uh, you didn't have a lot of control over those things. You played no part in those things. You don't remember those things. In fact, you know, for, for, for those of you that are parents or grandparents in the room, if you've been in the room when a, a child's been born, the baby doesn't do a whole lot of work. Mama does a whole lot of work. The baby doesn't do anything. That's what he's saying, that, 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 that this thing that has to happen to you, this, this need you have of rebirth is beyond your ability. It can't be you. He's bringing to Nicodemus an entirely new paradigm for salvation. He's saying, okay, Mr. Church guy who has all of the answers, let's try this. Instead of, instead of talking about your teaching and your gifting and your pedigree and your history, instead of talking about all these things that you think make you worthy and beautiful and loved, you've got to throw all those things out because what I'm telling you is something so crazy has to happen to your soul so radical and so complete it's like being reborn because you have a need that you can't meet and the only way to meet it is by a work of the spirit if you're here this morning and you're not religious you're just visiting with family or you, you had an inkling you want to go to church this should be good news to you because what he's saying is it doesn't matter how good you are or how good you're going to be or how hard you're trying or how pious you are or how many resolutions you make to try harder because it's not about how good you are, how good you've been, or how bad you've been. It's free because Christianity isn't offering some self-help guide or some do-better morality. If you're here this morning and you're a religious person, maybe even a follower of Christ, this might make you a little uncomfortable. Because suddenly salvation is far less about you, about what you've done, about what you bring to the table about what you possess or what you have, and it's far more about God and what God's doing, what God has done, than it is about you. It's a view of salvation that should 
unsettle us. It should unsettle us because it shows that we have a need that's absolute and it's beyond anything we can do. It doesn't just unsettle us because of the need we have, but it unsettles us because we're dependent. Jesus keeps going, and, and, and Nicodemus says to him, Can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter in a second time to his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, No, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What's he saying? He's saying there's, there's an urgency. There's an urgency and a necessity of this new birth to get into the kingdom. For you, Nicodemus, for me, for you. He says that, you know, it, it, it's kind is like kind. Physical birth is physical birth. Spiritual birth is spiritual birth. And, and Nicodemus doesn't, doesn't get it. Because he keeps asking questions. He's really confused. But Jesus is pointing us to the fact that there has to be a work of the Spirit in us, in me, in you. I don't know about your, your Bible or your translation, but, but mine, when it says you must be born of the Spirit, capital S. And that, that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Again, it's a born of the Spirit, capital S. It's, a, it's a, the, the Holy Spirit personified. It's the third person of the Trinity. He's saying, you know what, you, you, you want to keep trying on your own. You want to keep giving it another go and do a little bit harder and you think you'll get it right. That's not how it works, Nicodemus. You can keep all the law you want to keep. You're still going to fail, Nicodemus. What you need is divine. What you need is miraculous. And you are dependent upon the third person of the Trinity to work in you. Think about that. We hate this. We hate being dependent. And it starts at a young age. right? I've got, I've got three daughters. One can tie her shoes. One wishes she could tie her shoes and one doesn't wear shoes. With that one that wishes she, sh she could tie her shoes, she will sit down and twist shoestrings together till she's blue in the face. She'll put her coat on by herself and it doesn't work. She tries to put her shoes on by herself. She's finally got that part down. For a long time, they're on, always on the, the wrong feet. Especially young age, we want to be independent. We, we want to not have need of others. Whether that's caring for ourselves or, or providing for ourselves, or that's playing some part in our salvation. And we definitely want it when it comes to playing some part in our salvation. Because if we're totally dependent on God for this work, if we bring nothing to the table, then he can ask anything of us. And that scares us. Because it means that we're not really in control. So when we begin to, to encounter the real Jesus, it should unsettle us. Unless God opens your eyes, unless God gives you ears to hear, unless the Spirit gives you a heart to believe, you will not find the kingdom. You will not find the kingdom. And so we have great need and we are utterly dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit. Think about Nicodemus and how unsettling this must be for him. And he's a man who has devoted his life to law keeping. He's a man who, who has risen up the ranks. He's the teacher of Israel. He's a man of great prestige and position and power. And we'll find out he's also a man of great, need, of, of, of great possessions. I mean, he, he's, he's got wealth. 
because of all of this. And so he's being told that no, that, that, that it's not any of those things, Nicodemus. It's a work of the Spirit. You must be born of the Spirit. You must be born from above. And it shakes Nicodemus, and it shakes us at our very foundation, our very core of how we want to live. You need God by His Spirit to do something you could never do, that you can't possibly do. If you're a believer here this morning, this should be humbling. It should also bring you some peace. It's humbling because you realize you don't have any chips on the table. You don't have a role in this except for responding. That that moment when uh, you said yes to Jesus and, and, and yes to following him was actually just a reflexive action from the work of the Spirit who had changed your heart and made you born from above. So that means all of these, these things that we do that we think might earn us God's love and God's favor, that, that the church attendance and the Bible studies and the scripture memorization, the tithing, and all these things that are part of following Jesus, when we do them to earn love and to earn favor, they're worthless. But when we see them for what they are, the reflexive action in response to the work of the Spirit in our hearts and the grace of Christ, they become these beautiful things of obedience and of life here this morning and you're not a, a Christian and it should be puzzling to you that, that, that a religion like Christianity would place so much emphasis on our humanity, on our brokenness, on our sinfulness, on our frailty that it leaves only room for God's glory and our salvation that, that, that we would place so much emphasis and center so much of our theology and, and our worship and our lives on God and not on us should puzzle you that Christianity is so focused on this triune God and not on man. If you've grown up in the U.S. and you're a, a Western or a red-blooded American, it should probably make you a little angry. Right? I mean, what, what about what I've done? What about my, my Protestant work ethic, the hours and the, and the time I've poured into this? It's not worth anything? That's what you're trying to tell me? No, it's worth something. No, it's it's only by grace. By grace alone. One of the, the great taglines of the Reformation. It's none of those things that we think add to it. God's grace. His grace alone. So what does this do? Think about what it means. It means that you've been pursued. It, it, it means that you've been loved. It means that you've been won despite yourself apart from yourself. That, that, that none of those things had anything to do with what you were doing. How good you were, how bad you were. None of it. That you were pursued and loved and won because of God's grace. It should unsettle us. But it but should also say to us that, that, that look, when life feels out of reach, when we can't figure out how to move forward, and, and, and we get there pretty often, right? When we can't make sense of this world, we might even be there on some level this morning. It, it, it tells us that, that, that we can look to him, that we can bring it to Christ Jesus. Because it's not us who accomplishes these things. It's God. 
the work of the Spirit that accomplishes these things. So, so we can go as people who are tired and weary to the one who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Because it's not on us to accomplish, it's on God. Jesus proclaiming here a, a grace that recognizes our frailty, that, that recognizes our inability, that recognizes our fleeting faith and says, it's not you that accomplishes it, it's God. How comforting that is. How much peace comes with knowing that and resting in that, that once you've been born of the Spirit, you can't be unborn of the Spirit. That, that once the Spirit has changed your, your heart of stone into a heart of flesh, He can't change it back. Because that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. That which is born of above is from above. What peace that brings. But it's not of us. And that's unsettling. It shakes us. But it's not just that his grace unsettles us by showing us how needy we are, by showing us how dependent we are, but his grace does something else. It compels us. It compels us to deeper faith. It compels us to, to, to trusting him more. It compels us to, to loving him more. It compels us to, to greater obedience. Well, how does it do these things? Well, first, it, it, it's by knowing how the Spirit works and seeing the Spirit at work. Right? He, he says, don't marvel at these things in verse 7 that I said to you. You must be born again. Don't marvel at that. For the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it's with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says, look, I understand that you're thinking about this just purely from biological spots. And, and, and I get how you think that's impossible for you to be born again as, at, at an old age. But, but, but wake up a little bit, Nicodemus. This isn't about that. It's about a spiritual rebirth. It's like you're a knucklehead, Nicodemus. Pay attention here. It's a spiritual renewal, and you've been looking for this renewal in all the wrong places. You've been pursuing this renewal in all the wrong avenues. We do this, right? I mean, we, we rely on our own efforts for renewal. Think about the times in, in my own life when, when, I, when I don't feel God's presence, when I don't feel his love, when I don't seem to understand it, and I am dry, and I think to myself, I just got to read the Bible more. I got to pray more. I got to turn Christian radio on and turn, turn you know, country music off. And uh, country music's God's music too. But, you know, you know what I'm saying. I got to listen to some hymns. And, 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 I, and I think it's all these things I've got to work myself into to get this spiritual renewal. And he's saying to us, no, no, Nicodemus, no, Marty, no sycamore. It's the work of the Spirit. And by seeing the work of the Spirit, we're compelled to, to, to trust it. And, and, and to seek it out and, and to have faith. And, and, and this book is, you know, parts of it are more than 2,000 years old. And, and we have a greater understanding of meteorology today. And, you know, he says you don't know where the wind's coming from or where it's going. We can predict wind now, right? I mean, if you watch the, the, the weather channel at all, uh, you know, if you're looking for a nap, it's a great place to turn. But they'll tell you that it's going to be a windy day. And that you can, you know, you, you can watch it. But here's the thing. We can harness the power of the wind. We can catch it in a sail or, or have it turn a, a, a wind turbine and produce power from it, but we can't control it. We can't bottle it up. It's just like the work of the Spirit. We can harness the, the power of the Spirit that's in us, that's been given to us as, in, in this rebirth, that compels us to obedience. Or we can continue to ignore it, like we do so often. We can see 
God at work around the world through you know, missionaries and ministries or in our own church and be encouraged by it and be compelled forward to persevere through the dry times and the hard times because God is faithful to his promises and we see the outworking of that all around us. He's the one who does the work, and that compels us. It should compel us to step out in faith, to throw ourselves before the throne, to believe more and pursue more, because we're not worried about screwing it up. We're not worried about messing it up, because it's a work of the Spirit and not of us. Christians, we, we can take more risk for the sake of the gospel, because failure becomes an option when we're compelled by the Spirit. Why? Because it's not dependent on us. It's the Spirit that accomplishes these things. And so we can throw ourselves in, into ministries and, 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 and into to, you know, initiatives and, and all kinds of things. We can put ourselves before our families and our friends to proclaim to them the good news of the gospel and realize that we could fail miserably. That's okay. Because we have the power of one who does not fail in us, who's at work through us, through his church, globally, through all of history. It's not just the work of the Spirit, though, that compels us, but the work of the Son. Uh, verse 13, Jesus begins to kind of give his, uh, his resume, you know, a little bit of a glimpse of who he is. He says that no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Like Nicodemus, I know it's hard to understand. Just, just believe me. Here, here's a little glimpse of who I am. I'm the incarnate son who's come down from heaven to be with you. The second person of the Trinity, God eternal. I've come to you. And then he gives us this, this picture that's coming of the cross. This whole serpent thing, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's from a story in the book of Numbers. It's from Numbers chapter 21. The, the people are in the, the desert, and they start to mumble and get angry and frustrated and complain uh, about God. That he's brought them out of Egypt and not fed them or given them water or cared for them. And, 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 and in their complaining and their grumbling, they begin to sin against the Lord. And, 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 and God... I mean, he, 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 he allows it for quite some time for them to do that. And then finally, he, they get to a point where they're, they're not repentant. They're not coming back to him. And so he sends these serpents, these snakes, into their camp. And these snakes are venomous. And they bite people, and people begin to die. And it, it wakes the people up, right? And they repent, and, and they come running back. And, and God says to Moses, okay, they've been repentant, but, but the way that you're going to cure them is you're going to make a bronze snake and you're going to put it on the end of a pole and you're going to raise it up over the people and those who look at the snake will they'll be saved they will live but if they don't look at the snake they'll die we hear that and we like that is okay it's an interesting story in numbers like the old, old testament but jesus interprets it for us he says just as the serpent was raised up so must the son of man be raised up the Son of Man says, I must be lifted up similarly, that you might look on me and live. When we're looking on Jesus, what are we looking at? 
When they were looking on the snake, they were looking at the very thing that was killing them. They were looking at the, the, the very thing that the Lord was using to, to bring him back to them, to, to, to cast judgment on them. And they looked to the snake and they lived. They had to look at the very thing causing their death to live. When we look at the cross, we see life. But the Bible tells us that we should also see the things that were causing our death. For he who knew no sin became sin. He, he became a curse that we might be redeemed. See, when, when he says he has to be lifted up, it's the same thing as a snake. We have to be, he has to be lifted up so we can look upon the cross and see our sins paid for, covered with the blood of Christ. So just as when they looked at the snake, the power of the snake was, was taken away, it's the same for us. The power of the snake disappears when they looked at the snake on the pole. And when we look upon Jesus, the power of death disappears. The power of sin disappears. The power of shame and guilt disappears when we look upon Christ Jesus. The Son of Man, the incarnate God, who, lifted, was, who must be lifted up. He compels us to what? First, to trust Him. He's saying, this is who I am, Nicodemus. Just listen to me. Believe what I'm saying is true. He's used this phrase, truly, truly, multiple times. Right? He, he, he doesn't use it in any other Gospels. John uses it quite a bit. And he uses it a lot right here in this little section of John 3. It's the Hebrew word for amen, which means this is true. And he's using it twice, repetitively. It's rarely used like that in, in, in uh, Hebrew literature anywhere. And it's almost always used after a statement. After they've said something, they would say, then this is true. Jesus is using it repetitively twice before he makes a statement. He's saying, Nicodemus, trust me. What I'm about to tell you is true. Believe it. So truly, truly, I say to you. And so he's calling on us to trust it. He's begging us to look to him, to look to him as our substitute, to look to him as our sacrifice, to look to him as our salvation. He says, yeah, you, I, I know that you're struggling. I know that, that you struggle with, with your faith, that it's fleeting. That's why you must look to the cross. Jesus says, right, uh, John tells us that right before that, that Jesus didn't commit himself to these people. Why? Because their faith, their faith was fleeting. We don't put trust in our faith. We put our trust in the object of our faith. Because our faith goes like this. You're going to have moments where, where, where you trust God, you jump off a cliff because you're trusting God. Don't do it. Gravity's still law. And then there's moments where we won't trust God with two pennies in our pocket. Our faith is fleeting, but the steadfast faithfulness of God is not. She says, look to me. Look, look, look to me. And her suffering, look to me. It's not because I'm, I'm going to give you an absence of suffering or an avoidance of suffering, but, but I'm going to show you what it looks like to have suffering redeemed, to give suffering purpose, to give you hope in it that tells you that, that, that because I was raised up and then raised up, that there's hope that that suffering is not going to last, that that, that, that suffering is going to end at some point. So he's saying, trust me. Second, he, he's saying, seek after me. F follow me in obedience. Pursue obedience. To remember that, that he became sin to redeem us, that, that he bought us with his blood. And so, as Lord, 
We look to him and we say, okay, Lord, I want to follow you. It compels us to follow him. Right? It says that those, the light has come. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light. For those who have been reborn by the Spirit, we have come into the light. And so in our obedience, we throw before Jesus our confessions, our repentance. We let him in the dark places that we don't let anyone else so that he might redeem them. So that he might work in us that we might become more like Christ. Lastly, he compels us by his love. Most quoted or most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Have you ever been loved by someone so much that you would do anything they asked of you? Or loved someone so much that you would do anything for them? I like to think that I love my wife like that, or I love my girls like that, but I know it's not true. And yet here, we, we, we see God's love so great that he would give up his only son. And it says that he came not to condemn, but to save. You know, I know most of us have, have a view of God that often is one that says God is, is one of condemnation. That he's angry and punitive. And yet here in John chapter 3 it says no. That's not why Jesus came. He came that we might have salvation. That we might be saved through him. Nicodemus, unsettled as he was, we know that this grace that's been given to him now, that that he is beginning to understand compels him. And compels him to, to a new life. And we know this because he comes up again in the Gospel of John comes up again in the Gospel of John after Jesus' death. John chapter 19, it says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Now, we don't, we don't know the cost of myrrh today or what kind of aloes he had and how expensive they were. I know that at Christmas time, I, I go over to the place I can't pronounce with the French name, the La Asseltan, whatever, you know, to, to buy Meredith a gift package um, about every other Christmas because it takes her a while to work through the the different aloes and things that come with those. Very nice stuff. You know, great shea butter, wonderful for the hands. But, but it's expensive. And here we have this man, Nicodemus, who came curious as could be asking Jesus questions. Didn't even get his question out before Jesus began to teach him. And as, as he was unsettled and, and humbled by this grace, it compelled him to change his life. Because we get to the death here and he brings 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe To bury Jesus. It's a king's ransom. It's a king's ransom. Nicodemus went from a man who said, I know you're from God because of what you've done to saying, I know you are God. I know you are the king of kings. I know you are the Lord of lords. And, and because of that, 
here's my wealth. Even in your death. You know, as we encounter the real Jesus, it should unsettle us. It should shake us. But it should also compel us. It should compel our curiosity that we might want to learn more about him. It should compel our obedience. It should compel our trust and our faith. It should compel us to live lives that say he's the king of kings. It should compel us to ask, what can I give? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work of the Spirit. We thank you for the work of salvation. The power of the Spirit. It's not dependent on us. It's a work of you and us for your glory. We pray you would be this morning working in our hearts, reminding us of that. The beauty of the gospel in our lives. That we might be compelled to trust you to seek you and to give of ourselves freely for you. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.